Uh, this week is Parsha's Turuma, and it begins five or six Parshios that talk about the tabernacle, the Mishkan. After Sinai, about a half a year later, the Sinai experience, they're still at Mount Sinai, they start this massive fundraising campaign. And they fundraise an enormous amount of gold and silver and all kinds of precious materials. And they begin to build this amazing structure that's going to be traveling with them. It's called the Mishkan. It's called the Tabernacle. And it's going to be the nucleus of the future temple. And it's going to have all these vessels where they do all the sacrifices and all the worship. And this is the first parasha. The word Truma, in fact, means fundraising. God tells Moshe, begin the fundraising process. We, we need an enormous amount of materials, and we want the Jewish people who are interested in, in supporting the project to partake and participate in it. Now, there's an interesting thread found throughout all the commentaries on various vessels. And when they talk about, let's say, the menorah, and then there's the shulchan, which is the table, and then there's the uh, mizbeach, the various altars. There was a small altar made out of gold. There was a massive altar that was made out of, it's called Adama, it's made out of earth. And, of course, the most, the holiest of the vessels is the Ark, which is in the Holy of Holies. So the Talmud tells us something really interesting. If you notice that there's three vessels in this week's parasha that it tells us, God tells Moshe, to make, make a crown around it. And those three are the Shulchan, which is the table on which they put the showbreads. It's, it's this... Um, golden table with a golden crown around it and then there is the golden altar which is a small little altar like a little block with a crown of gold around it and finally if you look at the ark itself it's a box a golden box inside the box there's a piece of wood but then it's covered with gold as well so you wouldn't even know that there's wood in it on top of it there's the cover and there's the ring around it and there's the cherubs on top so the Talmud says, well, well, there's three vessels out of all the vessels in the, in the temple, in, in, the, in the tabernacle, that have a crown around it. What's the significance of these three crowns? So the Talmud says something really interesting. I think that this does bring this whole idea of the tabernacle a little bit closer to home. It says that the crown of the Mizbech, the crown of the altar, that crown was given to Aaron and his descendants. The altar is representative of the Kohen and the Kohanic family, and that crown of glory was given to Aaron and his children. There's no way for any one of us who are not Kohens to get it. The crown of the table, that crown was given to King David. That refers to the monarchy, to the kingship of the Jewish people. The table is, of course, uh, we put the breads. That's representative of the, uh, the, the monarchy of the nation. And that's given to David. Again, that's not for us unless we're descendants of King David. However, the final crown of the Ark, that is waiting for anyone to come grab it. That refers to the crown of Torah. And Talmud says that's the greatest crown. And that is open and waiting for anyone who wants to come seize it. And there's this idea that we find in all the literature about the Ark that the Ark is representative of Torah greatness. And in fact, what they actually put inside the box is the actual tablets that Moshe got at Sinai, both of them, both the broken ones, first ones, and then the second ones, which were not broken. Moshe got, Moshe got a first tablet. He comes down, he sees the Jewish people with the, with the golden calf. He crashes it, destroys them, and then he builds a new one. God tells him, I want you to chisel for me a new one. And both of those were stored in the ark. 
Where the art is today and where those tablets are today, we don't know. It's a great mystery. But the with the Torah itself or the the, the Ten Commandments, the, the the tablets which are representative or microcosm of the Torah at large, that was placed inside the ark because the ark is representative of Torah. The the Torah scholar, someone who grabs the crown, so to speak, of of Torah that the Talmud is describing, that's someone who also has within them something. And just like the ark has the Torah in it, the Torah scholar has the Torah in him. Now, it's interesting, the Talmud actually, elsewhere, the Talmud is discussing what happens when you have to decide priority between various people. So we know if someone is more is more honorable than the next person, then they are they're given the honor ahead of them. So for example, the first Aliyah goes to the Kohen. The seven Aliyahs read on Shabbos, the first one goes to the Kohen, that's goes to the Levite. And only the third one goes to the Israelite. Why? Because that's the way it is. They're descendant of Aaron, they're a Kohen, and they're a bit more special. But the Talmud has a question. What is the order of priority if you have two people? One of them is the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, the spiritual leader of the Jewish people, direct descendant of Aaron on one side, but he's not a great Torah scholar. And then you have, on the other side, you have a Mamzer. A Mamzer is a bastard. A Mamzer is a pariah. A Mamzer is an outcast. A Mamzer is not even allowed to marry the Jewish people. They have to marry either another Mamzer or someone else. But, but they're a great Torah scholar. Says the Talmud, the Mamzer takes the president. Why? Quotes a verse. The verse says that Torah is Yikara Mipninim. That the Torah is more precious than Pninim. Pninim means pearls. But the Talmud makes a little play in words. Pninim is also Lifnai Ulifnim. The words describing the inner sanctums of the tabernacle is lifnai ulifnim, is inner sanctums, like inside and inside, which is the Holy of Holies, which is where the ark goes. Torah is more precious than someone who goes into the inner, inner, inner sanctums of the, of the tabernacle. So the Kohen Gadol, right? He's special. He's the only one who's allowed to walk into the Holy of Holies once a year to go where the ark is. So he's really special, but Torah is even more special. And now it, really, it kind of makes sense. that This kind of completes the circle. If the Torah styler is the Ark, the Torah styler is always in the Holy of Holies. So therefore, the Kohen Gadol comes in once a year, so he, he's, a vis- he's a visitor to the Holy of Holies. Whereas someone who has Torah, well, they're a permanent resident. They're there all the time. And, I mean, and that kind of connects those, those two points, and that's why they would have greater priority. But there's another point that the Talmud brings Talmud notes that if you look at the ark, so you look on the outside, and it's gold. And you look on the inside, and it's also gold. But the truth is, it's it's there is some wood there, and the, but the wood is covered, so you wouldn't know that there's any wood, because within and without, it's gold. And in fact, there's even a ridge that goes all the way around to conceal all the wood. Says the Talmud, every Torah scholar who inwardly is not like he is outwardly, they're not a real Torah scholar. Call Tamachacham, every Torah every Torah scholar. She'en tocho kebaro, that internally is not like he is externally, is not a Torah scholar. Why? And it quotes the verse. Because the ark, it has to be gold inside and outside. So what this is telling us is that 
again, with the model of the Ark, the Torah scholar cannot, if, if you're externally gold, you know all the Torah, but internally, we could see some of the corruption, some of the wood, so to speak, that was there. It wasn't covered over with the gold. There is bad character or bad mitos or bad behavior that really is who you are internally, then you're not a real Torah scholar. Just like the Ark had in it, the Torah was inside of it, so too the Torah scholar can't be that you just amass knowledge and you happen to know the knowledge, but it doesn't change who you are. The Torah has to go within you. You have to be gold inside. You have to Torah inside of you. And thus, you really are like the Ark and you really are a Torah scholar. And I think it's interesting to think about how this works. What this is telling us is that the our relationship with Torah is not one of a student, per se. We're not saying, okay, teach me stuff that I don't know. Tell me something I don't know. That's not what it is. It's the role is for someone to change who we are. We start off as just a regular person. And then we're trying to transform ourselves into something which is similar to the ark. But that's always holy. And therefore, we're approaching it by saying, how can we transform who we really are? I think there's a good way of explaining it um, based upon a, a series of Talmudic teachings, just kind of how Torah changes a person. After the Second Temple was destroyed, all the rabbis went to a city called Yavne. In fact, the Talmud tells us that when Jerusalem was under siege, the great rabbi in Jerusalem, Rabbi Yochanan Metzakai, we're going to meet him later on in Perkei Avos, he smuggled himself out, out of the city, and into the Roman lines. And he had an encounter with a general, soon to be Emperor Vespasian. And he impressed Vespasian so much that Vespasian said, okay, I'm granting some some wishes. He was granted three wishes, one of them that the Romans spare the family of the Nasi, of Robert Gamaliel, the family of the Davidic line. Number two, to find a doctor to heal another one of the rabbis, Rabbi Tzadok. And finally, Tainli Yavne v'chachamel. Give me the city of Yavne and its wise men. Don't destroy this one little city in the center of the land. He didn't ask to have Jerusalem spared. Seems like he knew it was a done deal. But give me Yavne and its sages. And Vespasian agreed. Yavne was spared. After the temple's destroyed, the Jewish nation is really reeling from the worst tragedy of all time, at that, up to that point at least. And all the power coalesces in Yavna, and they start rebuilding. And after a couple of, of years, there's, again, a, a flicker of hope in the heart of the nation. We have all these great scholars in the city of Yavna, and they're all studying, and all the, all the communities are sending their, the most prized students to the city, and the students are flourishing, and things really picked up, and the Romans were not so happy about that. So they made conditions very difficult for the Sanhedrin that had relocated to Yavne for it to flourish. So the Talmud tells that at various instances, the rabbis had to splinter up into various groups and to go underground. And there's an instance where we're told in the Talmud there was a cadre of rabbis from the from the Masif, from the Academy of Yavne, that they were hiding from the Romans in someone's attic. There was someone whose name was Nitza, and he lived in the city of Lud, and he had an attic, and in the attic, a bunch of rabbis were hunkering down 
weathering the storm, waiting for the Roman offensive to uh, to blow to blow by. And the Talmud tells us two conversations they had in the book of Sanhedrin. It tells us that these great rabbis hiding from the Romans about the year eighty-five of the Common Era. They had a question: What's the halacha if a heathen or a Roman puts a gun to your head and says, "Okay, eat non-kosher"? What do you do? That's where they had the whole discussion. When do you have to give up your life to not transgress a mitzvah? And when are you allowed? And when must you? When are you obligated to give up your life to not transgress? And that discussion was done under those conditions in the attic of this guy Nitza's house where all the rabbis, some of the rabbis were hiding out. And I guess it's apropos if there's such a, an atmosphere of, of Roman, uh, of Roman persecution and they're attacking not just the Jewish nation, but also the religion. Therefore, it's, it's appropriate for them to have this kind of conversation. So that's in the book of St. Andrew. In the book of Kedushin, we get a different debate that they had. They also a very fascinating debate. The question was posed, says the Talmud of Kedushin on page 40b. What is greater? Is it greater to study Torah? Or is it greater to do mitzvos, to do kindness, to do acts of righteousness? Which one's more? Which one's greater? Interesting question. We know, of course, Torah is great. And of course, doing mitzvos is great. But which one's greater? Not an easy question to answer. So initially, Rabbi Tarfon is one of the great rabbis. He announces his position to do a mitzvah is greater. Comes along Rabbi Akiva, another titan of the Talmud, and he says, no, to study Torah is greater. And finally, there's a consensus that it's greater to study Torah than to do mitzvos. Why? Sheha Talmud mevi lidemaisa. Because Talmud, i.e. study, that actually engenders mitzvos. So you do one and you get both. You can have your cake and eat it too. Which one's greater? To Talmud or Maisa? Doing studying or doing mitzvos? I have a solution. Why can't we have a both? We study and then we'll do mitzvos as well as a result. It's an interesting idea. Uh, this Talmud, Talmudic back and forth. Because first of all, here the Talmud concludes that doing, that studying Torah is greater. In a different Talmud, there's the conclusion that seems to, you know, be, be the opposite. The Talmud of the Book of Brachos says that the objective, the goal of Torah study is to do mitzvos. So it seems to say that, well, which one is more primary? It seems that this, doing mitzvahs is more primary. And here it says studying Torah is more primary. Question number one. Question number two. How could the Talmud assert that studying Torah will necessarily bring about to doing mitzvahs? Maybe it's not true. Is it not possible for someone to study Torah and not do mitzvahs? Why not? And thirdly, the conclusion of the Talmud, that sort of speak moots the whole argument. If it's true that Talmud brings to action, so you do Talmud, you get action. You study, you get mitzvahs. Well, if that's the case, then what's the argument to begin with? How could anyone disagree and say that, that, Talmud is, that, that, that Talmud is not greater? Of course, Talmud is greater because you get both. Those are some of the questions. I think from this debate, this dialogue, we could really see what, the, what do the sages mean when they talk about Torah study? So the question was posed. Okay, I can only do one. I can study Torah, do mitzvahs. Which one should I do first? Which one, which one has greater priority? Says Rabbi Tarfon, okay, well, what's more important? What's the goal? 
The goal is certainly, like the Talmud says in Brachos, the goal is to do mitzvos, to become a person who does mitzvos. And therefore, if you have to choose a Torah mitzvos, do the goal. Says Rabbi Tiva, yes, that's true. The goal of Torah is to do mitzvos. And therefore, maybe mitzvos should be on a higher priority. But that's only if you're judging one act of Torah versus one act of a mitzvah in isolation. But if you kind of expand your vision and say, okay, what does what is the absolute net result of everything of this action, of this option versus this option? One mitzvah is a mitzvah. It's great. That's the goal. That's the objective. That's what you read. You know, that's that's the end game. But Torah actually it kickstarts a process that actually changes the person and thus creates a new reality in the person themselves that's going to result in new behaviors that are going to come from this new person. The power of Torah is that it actually is going to fundamentally change the person and transform bad character and bad midos and bad behavior into good. And the result of that is a person who will now behave in line congruently with their new changed identity. And therefore, Robert was telling, yes, of course, the goal of everything is that we should become a changed person. But how do we do that? We do that through Torah. And I think it's fitting that Rabbi Tiva is the one who teaches us this lesson. You know, Rabbi Tiva, famously, he grew up in ignoramus. And he had this epiphany at the age of 40 as a shepherd, where he went to the, he went to the well and he saw a very bizarre cylindrical-shaped hole in a rock. And that kind of piqued his interest. How, how is it possible to have an exact hole bored into a rock? And someone pointed out that there's a little stream of water that's dripping at that same spot. After many, many years, it's going to slowly penetrate the rock. As Rabbi Tiva, if water, which is soft, can penetrate a rock, which is hard, Torah, which is hard, can certainly penetrate my heart, which is soft. So this sounds like a nice play of words, and therefore he did dedicate himself to study Torah. But what's he really, so if you think about it, he's building for us a model of what Torah study is. Torah study is that water that penetrates the rock, says the Talmud. Initially, we start life, we have a heart made of stone. And the Torah is there to kind of penetrate and to transform the stone and to replace the stone heart with a different kind of heart, the heart of purity, a heart of holiness, a heart of Torah. And as a result of that, well, you have different hearts, you're going to operate differently. Therefore, Rativa is the one who says, no, the objective of Torah is for someone to be changed. And thus, if you follow the guidance and the counseling of achieving that the internal and the external are the same, your goal internally and out and externally if you allow the Torah to come within you, like the ark that harbored Torah within it, if you do that process, then you'll be a changed person. And then you'll exhibit externally and internally the same characteristic because that, that's who you are. And if you go that model, the Torah indeed will bring you to, to action. And you indeed will be someone who is greater than the high priest. You're not a occasional annual visitor to the Holy of Holies, you're there all the time. And indeed, you will be worthy of having the crown of Torah 
uh, affixed upon you the crown, which is even greater than the crown of kingship and the crown of priesthood.